inefficiency is very sustainable. Because what you're trading is efficiency for flexibility. Uh, hi guys, Steve Smith uh, from Urban Narrative, which was a small company I set up uh, 10 years ago. From Aykroyd Lowry, I'm Oliver Lowry. And I'm John Aykroyd. And this is Urban Forecast, a show where we talk to the people defining the future of our cities. We discuss their background, what drives them, and the insights they've learned along the way. This is a podcast for anyone who's interested in how we live, work or play in the cities of the future and what that means for the built environment today. We have Steve Smith from Urban Narratives and it would be great if you could just introduce yourself, Steve, and tell us a little bit about your background. Right, hi. Well, uh, hi guys. Uh, Yeah, Steve Smith uh, from Urban Narrative, which was a small company I set up uh, 10 years ago. Um, I'd spent most of my career in... uh, quite large uh, organizations, uh, both uh, in UK and internationally. Um, come 2010, after the last recession, I thought, you know, I've tried big projects and big corporate, and I thought I'd, uh, the one thing I hadn't tried in my life was uh, being solo. So I just set up a small micro company, and I, uh, if we need resource, it, I don't employ it. What I do is I try and network it into the, the network of friends, colleagues, like-minded people, uh, and what have you. Uh, urban narrative uh, on the banner it's an archi- we're architects and urbanists but actually what we specialize in is uh, the very very earliest stage in the design process which is briefing it's it's the point normally before a client's really got any big fees they can't afford to employ a big company but they can afford to employ me and give me a few shillings to uh, <laughs> to, to help them Get the questions together, get the, get the brief together, uh, such that they then can employ uh, you know, good professionals, uh, good younger, more dynamic uh, companies that, than, than my own to uh, um, get on and do whatever they do. We do a lot in the arts. Uh, arts organisations are very, very specialist uh, group, uh, museums, those sort of people, but also um, uh, urban projects where uh, you know, we, we, people launch into a great urban project, which maybe is going to take 20 years to do. Uh, they need to have a, clear, a very clear brief, they need to have a clear narrative, and they need to have a clear uh, idea about uh, how they're going to hang on to their, their core ideas through all the incredible obstacles which, um, uh, uh, which, which development uh, has to encounter, you know, recessions, uh, other people's opinions, the market, etc., etc., etc. So uh, that's me. It's, it's a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a one-man band. I'm a one-man band going out of uh, uh, stepping, stepping aside from corporate, the corporate world to try and. Uh, so sometimes when I'm generous, I think it's giving back a little bit to uh, the wonderful uh, career experiences I've had. Um, Can you give us just a few highlights of some of those career experiences? Um, well, I suppose uh, I mean I spent a long time working with, with Terry Farrell and. Um, and I, with a few colleagues, uh, we went through a, sh- a short period where we, where we seemed to win a lot of competitions in Asia. And uh, going to Asia, living in Asia, in, in Hong Kong, Malaysia, Korea, Japan, etc., was uh, just an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary eye-opening experience. For, for um, you know, I was only in my uh, early 40s at the time, and um, Terry trusted us. It was extraordinary. He trusted us to get out there and, and run the place, which we did. And that, that was extraordinary. So I suppose the, the biggest highlight project would be uh, Kowloon Station in, in Hong Kong, which was massive, massive rail interchange of uh, five or six different systems that we had to uh, organise. 
Uh, and then, typical of, of Hong Kong, we have to then build a city of 20 million square feet of accommodation on the, on the roof. And uh, so I was responsible for the, uh, the strategy of pulling that all together. So, you know, how, how do you build a station, which you've got to build now, and facilitate the future development, burying it basically in a, in a great mountain of development that goes up to uh, 80 odd stories. Yeah. So that was a big highlight. Um, more recently, I think working with uh, Jude Kelly at the South Bank Centre was life-changing, absolutely life-changing experience about uh, um, how very creative, very creative, very dynamic people in the arts, how they think very differently about space, property, accommodation, how people interact in space. So that, that would be a second great highlight. Do you think that given your sort of experiences globally, it's given you an appreciation of the kind of the different grains that you get. I know that we've spoken about this before, but like the sort of the urban grain, I think of a, of a place is quite particular. When you're doing a project like that in in Hong Kong, did you try and respond to the grain, or did you sort of tabula rasa approach it? Um, well, the, the first the first thing in Hong Kong is to realise you don't know very much. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing you don't do is wander into uh, an extraordinary hyper-dense urban condition like that and think, well, you just apply, it's just, you know, European urbanism pumped up a bit. It is not. It is a completely different way of understanding. And I have to say, Terry was fantastic at that. Terry, Terry Farrell, very, 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 very clever guy. And he went over there and looked at the city as it was and tried to learn the lessons of what was there and then how do we work creatively with, with, with the... Uh, what you know? What was going on over there? So uh, the de definition of what is a plot of land, the definition of urban grain is completely different in a hyper-dense hyper condition. What you, what you have is the, the city is so highly compressed that the urban grid actually becomes the architectural grid. But you're actually building 13 hectare buildings, uh, 13 hectare plan buildings extruded vertically. So very, very differently. So uh, um, um, isn't answering your question directly, is it? No, but, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, I think in, in in the European setting, I think what's very striking is uh, something you see across the globe, is that uh, small scale granular urbanism, such that we had here in uh, you know up until the 19th century, is disappearing everywhere. Bil buildings are getting bigger. Building plots are getting bigger. Um, uh, the massing of building is getting uh, uh, grander. And I think it's something to do with um, the scale of capital that has to be uh, assembled in order to do a project. It's getting bigger and in bigger lumps, in pension funds, in sovereign wealth funds and what have you. They're not interested in a small scale pot, however delightful that might be in a sort of picturesque or urban, urban way. They're, they're not really interested in it. Um, and of course, and there are other pragmatic things about the large, the large grid uh, city in terms of efficiency and, and, and what have you. Uh, but it does seem that cap the way in which capital works uh, mitigates against small-scale urbanism. And I, I think you first said that to us probably around maybe even a year ago or six months ago. Since then, the scale of that problem has just increased massively with, with inflation. So. We recently hosted a, a breakfast event. There's lots of was the head of regeneration of a, of a London borough, basically said um, that they they were unable to deliver their own small infill sites, yes. um, and they were the owner land because the, the, the 
you know, the bill costs are just prohibitive. They're not going to get back any value over a long time. And it, it, same thing. So they, they're like, well, we don't really want to sell them. Yeah. So nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you just look at um, uh, Shoreditch, where I've done quite a lot of stu studies, for example, you look at the Victorian grain, and uh, there's quite big commercial buildings. Uh, and they were at the scale that uh, a company might build, you know, or, or a grand family might, might build. Um, but of course, each building has to have a, you know, um, a lift and a stair in, of course. And if you do it at a very small scale, it still needs a lift and a stair in it, or two stairs in it, the stairs in it. So it, start, it stops, stops being uh, efficient, and I think that's, that's obviously a great pressure to have larger, consolidated, big floor plate buildings. What it changes, of course, is the politics of who can build a city. Who, who, who are the contributors to the, to the city? Um, we all do, in a way, big tenants, but we're not kind of owner-occupier builders uh, of the city. Um, so I think you know, planning, capital, and many other things mitigate against uh, that. Uh, and, of course, um, emotionally, you feel that as a loss. Do you think that, yeah, I, mean, I think that's really interesting. Do you think, with that in mind, you know, in a way, the kind of dense Asian cities are more of a template that the European cities are going to follow. Because I'm thinking what you're saying about floor plates and things is very relevant in the UK at the moment because we need more and more stairs. Since Grenfell, there's a requirement for dual cores in lots of buildings where there weren't. And that's probably, you know, it's a good thing, but it, it does mean that you get less efficient circulation. And so to try and, you know, mitigate that, designing in plots or in, you know, in larger scale, as you were talking about yeah. on the city grid. So do you think that's where London's headed or other European cities? Well, I think, I think we, have a, we have a very specific planning system here and uh, it's patchy in, in London. What, what's interesting, if you get up high and look down on it, what you see is um, plots where there's an opportunity just getting extruded to, well, about as high as you can go before you hit the, uh, the, the airport restrictions from Heathrow. That's about <laughs> as high as you can go. Uh, of course, by uh, Asian European standards, that's about halfway up. You know, the shower, we think that's tall. That is not tall at all in, in terms of the Dubai scale or what have you. Um, so what you see in London is uh, places of opportunity, mostly post-industrial, quite often in 1960s, not very clever, uh, not very efficient developments. Suddenly those plots of land zooming up uh, uh, to, to, a, to a great height. And in between, um, remnants of the 19th century city and the early 20th century city uh, at, a, at a lower rise, about, I don't know, getting up for eight stories or something like that. It's an uneven spread though, because I think that the politics, uh, which is the other factor, as well as the capital, the politics is not evenly distributed as to whether that is the right solution. And I think that there's quite a lot of pro-development boroughs where that is the case. Yeah. And that, you know, lots of forest, Brent, you are seeing that, where the, the scale of development is, is, is basically, you know, it's, it's, it's large scale. But it's because there's a sort of political will that that should happen. And it allows that capital to do that. It, it, Whereas it, I think there are other boroughs where that isn't the case because there's less pro-development attitudes. Uh, that, 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 maybe as well, yeah. that, that is true. Uh, of course that's true. Um, um, but, we're, but London is a bizarre... I mean, London in the South East generally is, is a, a bizarre situation of, of, of a more or less unlimited demand. There is, Demand, 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 and uh, whatever one's policy, the demand's there. The, um, it, it, if you restrict supply and the price goes up and up and up and up and up, and that's not very good for, for the ordinary Joe service of the, of the city, 
or you relax a bit and, and let the market do what the market needs to do, and uh, um, that's what that's what we that's what we're seeing in places like uh, I mean all sorts of places. I mean, amazing where high-rise buildings are popping up, you know, going out towards Heathrow, etc., etc. Yeah, it's a it's a market response, and it and it and it, and it is you know big scale, high efficiency, um, churning out flats by the yards. That's that's what that's what it is. It can. I mean, I think it's a new, right, it's a new loss. Form of London. It's a new form of London. Yeah. You're right. There's a loss, but then at the same time, there's an opportunity, and that is that these dense blocks can be sustainable. Yeah. Is it, you know that's that would be your hope is that yeah in these places of high density. But if you can plan the areas around it, and you know that's that's the thing is, how do you how do you make fifteen minute cities and, and you know places where people can go, live, work, play, educate, without having to move around the city? Because that's at least it's highly sustainable. If you are going to use the planet's resources, then actually you get quite a good bang for buck sustainability return if you can do this high density living. Yeah. Although you do lose the historic grain, and I agree with that is a loss. Uh, uh, you, you do, um, but I mean, some of the places you know that didn't have any historic grain. Some of the large industrial places were places of huge plots of, of land uh, that 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 are, that are being redeveloped. Um, to do the sort of urbanism you're talking about, that we, which I guess is, you know, the, the the lower parts of it being highly mixed, highly uh, you know, places to work, places to play, places to shop, etc. To do that needs needs a developer of great great sophistication, in, because. Um, I think what spreadsheets drive is simplicity. Mm. You know, what's the highest value? The highest value is this. Well, let's build lots of that then. Um, and then you know, twist my arm. Okay, you need. We have to have some amenity. Okay, we'll put a little supermarket in. But that isn't quite the urbanism you're describing. No, which is the something much richer. It shouldn't be the developer that's making that choice. It should be the system. The systematic approach of the planning system should be to try and cultivate these places. Yeah. So we're going to the Labour Party conference on Monday, Sunday. Uh, and we're doing a roundtable about can regeneration be sustainable, part of why we're here. Yeah. Pick your brain in advance of it. Um, but that's what we want to advocate, is that developers are just going to do what developers do, right? They're just going to try and make as much money from that plot as they can. Obviously, that's, that's, primary, that's, what, they want, that's what they're in existence to, to, yeah. to do. So the system needs to be the thing that mixes the uses, that gives you these, these sophisticated urban realms yes. that people want to live in are enjoyable to live in yes. and can deliver money for the developers because yes. each sector can make its money but you need to think outside of your own red line yes. yeah, and, and, and developers won't be that's, a, that's what the planning system should be and it's not, it's become a sort of prescriptive tick box, 500 page London plan document about bins and it shouldn't be it should be like trying to make these places where the infrastructure works and they talk to each other and you sure, sure. well I'd only slightly correct you there in that, I think the I think the very best developers that we have um, uh, do have the capacity to, to take the broad view, to balance out values, to deliver uh, highly mixed use. But let's look at that development equation from the point of view of, say, a local authority, say, a left-wing local authority, with a big plot of land and a, and a huge list of um, uh, demands being made on them to provide, for example, social housing. So they they have a plot of land; it has a certain capacity. Uh, they want to put. They want to. They want to do the very best for the maximum number of people for the budget they've got, uh, in order to, to house, to provide you know uh, affordable housing for for, the, for their for their for their borough residents. The the bottom line will be to drive out complexity and drive up the number of number of units for very very laudable social reasons. 
and to say, well, no, actually, we'll we'll have some some offices for some some interesting people. They say, well, those are not our priorities. There's nobody screaming at us to provide offices or shops or amenity or places to, to hang out. Other people can provide that. Our big thing. Look at the look look at the red lines on our priority list, and it'll drive a certain certain oversimplicity. Uh, I think. So in other words, you need an equal sophistication whether or not you're approaching it from a left-wing point of view, uh, provision of the maximum social good, or uh, a very right-wing point of view, driving the maximum profit. I think there is a, there's a great synergy there. It's interesting because, uh, you know, historically, where you have planned cities, they haven't always worked as good urban mixes. So if you look at, you know, even Paris, to some extent, it's very rigid and controlled and, and gridded. Harlow. Harlow, yeah. Milton Keynes, other, you know, you can think of other examples, although, I guess the, 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 the contrast to that might be New York and Hong Kong, or, you know, which are very dense and planned to a certain extent on the grid system. So it's just interesting, you know, there's a tension there, is there? You know, planning policy doesn't always make good cities, do you know what I mean? And how do we create good cities, you know? Well, I mean, uh, I mean if, if you read the Abercrombie Plan for London, for example, mm. the, you know, the Foundation Plan for London, a, a, a mixed-use urbanism was described as chaos. Oh, this is absolute chaos. We've got to tidy this place up. Yeah. For the, and for why? For efficiency. Yeah. To make it more efficient, to make the city more efficient, so you can drive faster, you can you can drive up productivity, um, have more open space, etc, etc, etc. You know, they have a list of uh, apparently admirable goals, but they mitigate against uh, all the things we love about cities, which are uh, you know, granular, mixed use, a bit chaotic, and all the rest of it. Because all of those things are not efficient, uh, <laughs> not necessarily delivering maximum value, but delivering maximum cultural value. That's, 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 that's the point. I mean, Ab Abercrombie, like Corbusier, Corbusier flew over Paris um, uh, in, a, in an aeroplane and was appalled at what he saw. Absolutely appalled, looking down at all these little plots of land and different roof terraces and chimney pots and all, all the rest of it. Which we would say, gosh, isn't that marvellous? <laughs> he just saw it as utter chaos. Such that he would come up with a, a preposterous plan to sort of wipe out Paris and replace it by a, block, a bunch of office blocks, or a bunch of uh, mixed-use blocks by himself. Um, and a completely mad, completely, completely mad desire for uh, extremely, uh, for extreme order. That's the point. There is a tension there with us now trying to go for more sustainable goals and make our cities more and more sustainable and more efficient to get more people in potentially so that there's less transport yeah. demands. You know, there's a danger that we lose that sense of place that a lot of architects like ourselves are seeking to create. Yeah. So I guess... Uh, there is something inherently uh, inefficient about great cities. <laughs> but there is, there is. And, and, uh, and of course efficiency is, is set up as such a marvellous goal, which it is in a way. Uh, if, you, if you have a, you know, a rather bottom line thinking about things, but uh, it's inherently inefficient. You need more staircases. You need, you need. It's complicated to rent it out. You know, it's going to be all sorts of people um, doing all sorts of different things in different buildings. That's not efficient. It's not efficient in the way that, you know, a twenty thousand square foot office plate, um, you know, with on a, on a one point five meter grid. You can really pack the people in there. Compare that with uh, a whole lot of little buildings with lots of staircases. <coughs> I mean, on, a, on, a, on any kind of um, objective efficiency-driven uh, set of metrics, it's nonsense. <laughs> but uh, but I think it, it, I think inefficiency is very sustainable. 
in that it's very because uh, what you're trading is efficiency for flexibility. Yes. You know the thing. The thing is, if an if a twenty thousand square foot office plate goes bust because suddenly, guess what? Technology has done away with the need for twenty thousand square foot office plates. You can't do anything else with it. Mm -hmm. If you have a whole load of funny little buildings that happen to be houses at the moment, you can perfectly well convert them to uh, uh, apartments later on, or dentist surgeries, or this that, and the other. So you have you, you tr and that is that is a much more ecological approach. That's the way ecology works, rather than monoculture. Rather than monocultures, absolutely. It's They're very efficient e farms. Exactly so. So an ecological approach, you'd have all sorts of weeds and insects and grabbing there and things eating each other and you know, things not getting as big as they, they would otherwise. Very, very inefficient, but, but, but strangely enough, come the drought, yeah, you know what, they all kind of look after each other and they shade each other out and it doesn't dry out so quickly, whereas a, a farm of weeds maximising the, the output. Climate change, you know, you ain't got no crop at all. Interesting. I mean, we're doing quite a lot of work with retrofit at the moment, this big kind of subject at the moment, and that is obviously seen as one of one of the sort of, I guess, planks of trying to create more sustainable cities is to yeah. reuse what we've got. Yes. But then it is inefficient. So, you know, have you any thoughts about overcoming that barrier or how we can, you know, or do you see, see that as a good thing? I guess we have to, uh, I, guess, um, I guess we perhaps have to need to as, as clients, as briefers, we have to be less arrogant. You know, we have to acknowledge that the future is unknown. So, let's let's say instead of um, prioritizing efficiency, let's let's prioritize um, uh, flexibility and resilience. Let's let's come up with a design and throw at it uh, a whole set of disaster scenarios. Let's throw at it. Well, imagine there's no such thing as an office market. Imagine the climate goes goes crazy. Imagine people don't want all this stuff. What can you do with it? You'd end up with you'd end up with much um, more buildings that actually look like traditional buildings. That they're, they're, they're not too deep. Uh, they have adequate numbers of, uh, of stairs. Pretty accessible. Um, um, very basic naked services that you can easily change. Not too many finishes, uh, and what have you. So you end up with buildings a bit like the one we're in, actually, uh, and quite a lot of them. And and, uh, and and think and think about building that, and that would be highly resilient. But you have to get the, the but that has to be a metric that you apply to it to say, well, it might not be scoring as efficiently, but it is scoring, hands down, you know, come the unknown future. And so I'm interested how this, how you we talked about before how you might. Make some of this stuff measurable. You just mentioned there that you know you could work out yourself a scorecard. So you're set, you're working with people now to set briefs, yes. and then assess the what comes back. I assume against the original brief. Yes. How do you score? I mean, do you literally make a kind of a, a chart of like ticking off what you said in the brief originally, or is it more you know is it exact or is it um, subjective? Well, you can do a, a, a school card, put numbers to it, and it's sort of like bogus science, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, um, so I mean, do, do are there actual metrics you can apply? I'm sure I'm sure somebody cleverer than me could, could come up with them, but I I, I personally I haven't done that. Um, um, but in terms of um, not making the building uh, too tightly. Uh, 
specific to to the brief. You know, that's an old idea, isn't it? You know, long life, low energy, loose fit. You know, that that is a, that is an old, but that's a good idea. Still a very good idea. Um, uh, and I think I think anybody who's building buildings which aren't um, aligned to that that sort of thinking. Well, you might do well at the beginning, but um, later on, probably not. And how do you when you're when you're writing these briefs? So, I mean, your company's called Urban Narrative. Yes. How do you are you sort of using words to convey meaning or intended outcomes? What, what's the sort of what's your process? Um, well, the process. Hmm. Uh, it's not terribly sophisticated, actually. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, I spend a lot of time talking to people and um, um, and pushing them a bit and saying, what do you mean? I, I don't understand what you mean. T tell me what you mean. Say that again. Uh, you want what? How? Uh, so uh, the, the question why comes up a lot. Why, why do you want to do that then? You know, uh, you know, and you tend to meet clients, sort of their first thing is, you know, well, we're completely full up. We need a lot more space. Oh, really? Why don't you throw out all that junk over there that I can see and, uh, <laughs> and you use that then instead? That, that sort of thing. If you enjoyed the show, then please subscribe and give us a review, ideally a five-star one. And uh, if you want to know more, please go to AckroydLowry.com or follow us on Twitter at AckroydLowry and Instagram with the same. This podcast supports LandAid, the property industry charity that brings together the sector to deliver life-changing projects for young people who really need it. Visit www.landaid.org to find out how you can help end youth homelessness. <laughs>